Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Believe in the fight game. Hello, everyone. This is Charles Yao with Believe in the Fight Game on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team and every sport in LA and more. We believe in sports. Do you believe? So how's the uh, preparation been for this PR tour? You're like this actor who's touring from station to station right now and promoting the project. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of slowed down. This last week, I didn't give too many interviews. I think I maybe only one. Uh-huh. But in quarantine, man, I was doing one to two podcasts a day. Oh. Yeah. And, and did you... Well, it's a passion project, obviously, also, but did you have to resummate and find the energy? Okay, I, I got to say it again, or is, is it not even one of those issues because you're so passionate about it, you know? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I haven't done this, but I bet if you listen to me talking about the project when I first started talking about it, maybe like three years ago, and you listen to me talk about it now, it's a very different Robert. Like my, my perspective has evolved. My understanding of jujitsu has evolved tremendously. I'm actually writing a book about the production of a documentary. And, you know, it's, it's about jujitsu, but the, the documentary, the history of jujitsu, the future of jujitsu, right? So, and we're going to use a lot of materials from the documentary that are not going to fit in the, the, in the film because it's just too much. But, I, you know, I, I like to use some of that information. And it's interesting because in the book, like a big part of it is me talking about my own evolution as a jiu-jitsu practitioner because I understand the art I practice now in a way that I didn't three years ago. So, you know, and it's the reading of the history books plays a role. The traveling plays a role. But I think mostly spending so much time thinking about what is BJJ? Like, what is it that we practice? Where did it come from? Not just who taught who. I'm not talking lineages here. I'm talking about culture. I'm talking about worldly events. I'm talking about why did we become specialized on the ground? Why didn't we become specialized in something else? Why not specialize in, you know, hip throws or your heel hooks? Why did it become, why was it so guard oriented, right? And spending a lot of time thinking about these things, you begin to understand the origin of BJJ in a way that, you know, I had never even, it's never crossed my mind that it was, it was so complex. So it, my interviews now, my understanding now is very different. And I think for that reason, it does, it's not old to me because I'm not talking about the same things. There's definitely been an evolution as to my understanding of the of jiu-jitsu. Well, for, for this interviewing conversation, you know, I want to come from the aspect because I've been doing this for quite some time, both on the side and professionally. You know, um, did you find or are you finding a newfound respect for journalists that actually do their research? You know, a big part of the thing, it's interesting you say that because I am a bit of a journalist. I'm a bit of a historian. You right? are a journalist now. Yes. And, and it's interesting because I've always been so critical of journalism, right? Because I feel like I, I actually, there's, there's, it's just funny you say that. I'm at, I was reviewing the part of the book that I'm writing that talks about how much I've always hated embedded journalists, right? Because you like you want to speak from a position of privilege in detriment of truth-seeking, in, tra- in detriment of honesty, in detriment of doing 
reporting things accurately because you want to stay within a position of privilege to continue your high status in, you know, in your job and, you know, for career concerns. And I've always hated that, but it's, it's so easy to get carried away and seduced by these temptations, right? It's an enormous effort to stay um, honest and unbiased because there's a tendency we have to become biased. It is very difficult to stay, you know, because it, I think that, you know, the, the human mind, it's, we're so flawed in so many ways. It's, it's almost like we're born like liars and dishonest and, you know, and kind of like dumb for lack of a better word. It's, you know, it, it's an enormous effort for you not to be absolutely incredibly stupid. Because if you don't make that effort, you end up believing dumb things. You end up repeating dumb things. It's hard not to. Like, it's an enormous effort, to be honest, because the first person you're going to fool is yourself for emotional reasons, right? For social reasons, for political reasons, for financial reasons. We're constantly lying to ourselves because it is a narrative that suits us. We like that narrative, right, because we benefit from it, so we tell it. So a journalist is going to tell a given story because he knows that if he tells a story that way, he knows he would advance his career. So that becomes a truth. It is a convenient truth. It is much harder to be an honest journalist that goes, see this fact right here, this ruins my career, but it's the truth. So as a journalist, I have a commitment to speaking the truth and I'm going to say it, right? I mean, nothing that hinders my career. Like I don't, I mean, I'm not worried about it, but like, you know, it's, I'm not in, in, in a position to lose my job because of, because of any of this, but you do, you are confronted with situations where, you know, you start wondering, am I being biased here? Am I being fair with Brazilians? Am I being fair with the Japanese? Am I being fair with America? Am I being fair with the Gracie family? Am I being fair with the fathers? Am I being pro-judo or am I anti-judo? What am I? And you want to make sure that what comes across is an accurate account, but it's incredibly difficult because we all have our leanings. Like I lean towards BJJ. I love BJJ. It's my life. So I end up like finding myself fake, making a case for it was a good thing that we split off judo. But then I look at the values in judo and I'm like observing, like I'm recalling my experience at these Kosen judo schools in, in Japan. And I'm going, well, wait a second. Like judo has much better values than we do. They're a superior martial art in that regard, you know. But at the same time, I, I love playing guard. I like my arm bars and my foot locks, you know. So to me, it's a, it's a bit of a conflict with all of this. And, and having to constantly check my own biases is it's something I spend a lot of time doing. And, you know, I, I hope that it comes across in the film and in the book that, you know, you know, the history of jiu-jitsu bias free, which this is really my goal from the beginning, but it's not an easy thing to accomplish. Well, that, just your statement alone, because uh, for me, I love people. I love interviewing people who interview people. Because it's kind of like the jujitsu kinship, right? Like, hey, you're injured. I have adhesive capsulitis. Oh, I had knee repair. So there's a foxhole mentality. So I want to make a statement first, then ask you, ask you another question. It's The first statement is you're in a great position because those journalists who get skewed, because you have your own sense of income. You are your own man. You're not tied to like the daily news or something. And you're, there's no like, version of payola so it's great because you can um move according to robert drysdale's math ah uh, that's not gonna skew me however because you are working in this grand project that you are funding 
in the middle in the middle of it were you like oh man i really like this guy but i got something i really got to push him on did you ever encounter something very contrary a hundred percent like for example like initially you know when i found out like one of the most shocking findings of our documentary is that the gracie academy was not founded by a gracie it was founded by another brazilian and it wasn't called the gracie academy and it wasn't in 1925 it was in 1930. is it Padrillo or that was donato Pires was Hayes. okay and I then, pronounce when, it, yeah. when, I, when i saw that i'm like man this is the beginning of jiu-jitsu's lineage wait a second this guy was a head of carlos in the hierarchy that changes the jiu-jitsu hierarchy, right? To, that, to me, that's not a big deal now, right? It's like, well, it, it's, it's not even that relevant of a fact cons- considering the whole picture. It's a small piece of the puzzle, but at the time, that was like mind-blowing, right? So, and then like later when I, you know, I start learning more about Donato, it's like, oh, he's not the awesome character I thought he was going to be. He was just like everyone else. <laughs> like he was, this, and then the more you learn about these characters, like you learn that there are no heroes, they're just people. And that was probably one of my, at first it's disappointing because we want to have heroes. They give us reference. Like we, we idealize the past. It's called, it's what I call the canonization of the past. You crystallize and you go, that past was ideal. Like George Washington was incredibly noble. There's nothing wrong with that man. How could he ever do anything wrong? Right. And then when you start learning about any historical figure, you'll learn that there are horrible things about them. And then you're like, wait a second. They're just people. They're just like me and you, man. They're flawed too. And then you like them more because you see the humanity. You don't see the, the, the hero, the, the heroic arc, 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 archetypical hero. You know, you see the, the human face, the, the flawed man, the guy who lies, the guy who's distorting everything to benefit himself. Like the guy who is just out there. He's a hustler. He's trying to make it. He's broke. He's trying to feed his family. So he does fake fights. You know, it's so easy to condemn, you know. But, um, I mean, there's a few of them. Like, George Gracie is someone that I liked him because, you know, he comes across as a very honest and very courageous man, very not concerned with his legacy, not concerned with, you know, his reputation in the future. He was concerned with fighting. Um, you know, he was hustling for money. He did not get along with his brothers. He was very, very different. It was very obvious. But, you know, he was no angel either. It's, it's very obvious that he was, he was flawed as well. And they all are, you know. And um, that was, you know, I, I, we were talking to the, in Belém do Pará, right, where Maeda taught. We were talking to a representative of the, the Japanese Amazonian uh, Association, right? And he, he's, he had been in Brazil for like something like 30, 40 years, right? And a good friend of his who had just passed away was a personal friend of Maeda. So he was an older gentleman, he, and he passed away. And he used to tell stories of Maeda, because uh, he was known in Belém do Pará. He was a very famous individual. And apparently he really liked to dress very nicely. Like he was very, like, he always had to be, like, very nicely dressed. Gapper. Yeah, exactly. And he liked to gamble. Um, apparently he liked to drink. And apparently he was a womanizer, too. And then we have this like Master Miyagi idea in our head, this great man who's going to be like some Shaolin monk and he's, he's got to be this, you know, and then you find out like he liked to gamble and drink and he'd lose his mind when he gambled. Like if he lost, he'd lose his shit, right? Like he just, that's a reputation he had. And that makes you like him more, not less. Initially you might be disappointed because you're expecting, you know, some idealized figure. And then you see that the history of jujitsu and all these characters is, 
it, it, it's, it's like the history of us. It's we're we're all we're the we're a mess, man. We're all over the place. We're not we're no angels. We're no demons. We're just a people trying to make it. Well, well, in that instance, do you like him more because he revealed it or do you like it more just because you learned about it from someone else? Um, Which one weighs more? Because for me, I would think it's because he revealed it and he was very um, open about it. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I love the, the, the openness of people. Like one of our favorite people to talk to was Armando Vredit. And he had passed, he passed away a while ago and he was, he was so honest, man. Like he had zero issues with just like telling history how it was. And I mean, sometimes he pushed it too far. If you ask me, he was like, it was beyond honest, you know, but you know, like, like George is a guy we, we learned to love uh, because there's an event that takes place, I believe in 1941, 42, I can't remember the year in the forties. And he goes to the press and he goes, oh, you see all these fights, everything that's going on. It's all fake. It's all fake. Everyone's fake fighting, right? I'm fake fighting. The, the, but you too? You tell me that your career has been fake? It's like, yeah, we're all fake fighting because that's how we make money. It bas- he's basically saying if we put on a real fight, you guys aren't interested. So it's, it's all fake, right? But the public was – if the public is uneducated now, you imagine this is after Hollywood movies, after the UFC. After, like 1940s, people didn't understand fighting like we do now, right? So they had to, you know, stage fights to make it exciting and make money. And then the reporter for everyone's fake fighting. And George goes like this, everyone except my brother, Helio. Helio doesn't fake fight, right? And it, to me, it's like this blew my mind because here's a guy who is basically like throwing his career, you know, dragging his career in the mud saying like everything I've done is a fraud, except my brother who at that time was not on good terms with George. Like and he- still gave him credit. Yes, exactly. And, and, and they almost fought a few times. They were not buddies. Like, they did not get along. They almost went at it a few times. They ended up having their students fight instead. But they were rivals, right? Uh, George is the first hero of the family. Later, he has a fallout with Carlos, and Helio becomes a new face of the family. But, you know, for George to condemn his own actions while commending his brother, whom he, had no, he did, not have a, who did not have a good relationship with, I mean, that's incredibly honest. Like, it's, it, I, I, to me, these are the things that stand out. I'm like, man, I love that. I mean, it, it may not seem, it seem like a lot to some people, but to me, it, it's the kind of thing that makes me, you know, that's the kind of guy I would like to befriend. Like, that's the kind of person I'd like to be around. You know, he seemed like a very honest and, and happy, and uh, he seemed to have a lot of life to him, you know, and he'd fight anyone, anytime, anywhere. And he was very important for MMA. And the spread of jiu-jitsu in Brazil, you got to remember the Gracie brothers like Helio and Carlos, they taught exclusively in Rio de Janeiro. George was teaching all over the Brazil. Like, he was all over the place. He's teaching in the Northeast. He's teaching in Sao Paulo. He's teaching in the South. He's, uh, he's a bit of an adventurer. And, he, you know, he, in a lot of ways, he did a better job than his brothers at spreading jiu-jitsu in Brazil. He left lineages all over the place. So – uh, he was erased because he didn't have a whole bunch of kids and he never cared about guarding his name. Like, it wasn't something that he was really concerned with. He was more, more uh, like, I'll fight anyone, anytime, anywhere, any weight class, any rules. And if I lose, I lost. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't a marketing guy. He, wasn't, he did not have any concerns for PR, put it like that. Were you learning stuff about George to go, oh, that's why he developed his personality that way? In any research, not, not even necessarily to the closed guard movie, but 
you know, you I, it is like we we stuck the honestly. I, there are people out there that have studied this so much more than me, man. But you know, I state I, I try to stick to the facts that we were going to use in the film. Like, what are the events that tell the story of BJJ? Not curiosities and side stories and biographies. So it's hard to give like the whole picture of George. Um, the one thing that was interesting to me about it was that every Gracie member, every uh, we spoke to like uh, Hobson Carlos Jr. Carlos Gracie Jr., Kira Gracie, and Hoyce Gracie, and they all referred to him as a rebel. And even mm. some of the historians refer, referred to George as a, a rebel, which I think is interesting. And they had, that word kept coming up. I think that word comes up like six or seven times in the transcripts and always in reference to George. So you can see he was the kind of guy that apparently after a fight, he'd just go out and drink a beer and hang out and be normal. And Carl's just trying to get him to eat oranges all day. He's like, I'm not doing that diet. That's, I mean, I, we don't, I don't know this. I'm speculating, right? Sure. So you know, like the kind of guy that would be like, nah, I'm not doing it. I'm going to go drink a beer. You sounds, know? sounds very Carlson Gracie. And then the seeking part is very Bruce Lee and teaching whoever wants to learn. Right. And like yeah. Hall's. Yeah. And, and, and see that the, the Gracie family has these two sides, but you get these figures like, Carlson Gracie, who, like, I've never seen anyone say anything bad about Carlson Gracie. Like, from all accounts, he was a, he was the nicest guy. He was a phenomenal instructor. He was humble. He had vision. And ironically, that's, that might be why, you know, he, we don't remember him as, as much as we remember Helio, for example, you know, because he was, he was a very quiet guy. He was not concerned with marketing, but I think in some ways, man, he, he is also one of the founding fathers of MMA. He was a visionary. Like when, you know, when the, when Healy was saying just Gracie Academy and you know, jiu-jitsu, Carlson is recommending these guys train Nogi and box and learn from other styles, right? Holes was like that too. You know, Holes was, was from all accounts, he was a bit of a visionary too in the sense where, you know, he was interested in Sambo and he was interested in wrestling and he didn't close himself to, to learning from only a few sources. Um, from all accounts, he like schooled Hickson in practice, practice too. Like Hickson drew a lot from him and, and later becomes like a new big name in the family, but it was holes, you know, it was, it's unfortunate because, you know, he died very young and it would have been, I think it would have been, um, and you just would have benefited a lot from having someone like him around. Um, but these, yeah, these characters are all like, they, they're, they're people, man. Like we, we tend to remember Carlos and Helio more, I think precisely because they did such a good job at conserving their name and, you know, especially Carlos, who was very good with marketing and PR. He was a very savvy man in that regard. And so was Horian. Horian is, you know, is very, yeah, I think he understood that, you know, how the, the, the public would react to, to a certain narrative. So when he brings Hoyce and later his father over to the United States, like he, he's very shrewd in, you know, building a narrative to protect a legacy. And the, the, the story, the history really begins in the 90s, it seems like, because these a lot of the things that we take for granted today were not talked about in Brazil prior. It's something that they barely, they didn't make a big deal about, but I think it might be a reflection of the American psyche too. Like we, Americans make a big deal out of lineages and, um, you know, who, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole, the creation, the, the, the myth of creation, right? Like which it's very important to us. Like in, in Brazil, people, didn't, didn't ask these questions, ironically. People didn't care that much. At least, you know, growing up in Brazil is not something that people were preoccupied with. It was the, 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 the story begins to be construed, seems to me, later on in the 90s, because if you're going to have a glorious present, you need an equally glorious past. 
So you have to, you know, make things fit that narrative. Robert, do you have kids? And if so, how many? I got two girls. Okay. So with learning all this politics, intra to whoever, not necessarily just the Gracies, but, you know, these, these big families, are. has any of this in the human condition aspect hit you to where it's like, dude, I'm going to stay on top of these girls and make sure they love each other. There's no politics between you siblings because I've seen the politics. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, the, the Gracie family is such an iconic family. You know, sure. they have their rivalries, like, and they, they do a pretty good job hiding it because it benefits their image if they act like they're very united. When I, I spoke to some of them and like, yeah, I've never met my cousin or I met my uncle once. Like they're very, there's not a lot, you know, they, they have clans within the family. There are multiple clans. I think when a family gets that big, there's no way around that. Like, I, I have uncles of mine that I'm very close to, and I have uncles of mine that I'm not so close to. And I have cousins of mine that I'm very close to, and cousins of mine I won't speak to for five, six years. You know, and I think that's how all families are. And given the size of their family, and given the fact that in one way or another, they are competing with one another, they're all doing the same thing. Remember, they're all, like, using their grace and name. They're all teaching jujitsu. I actually think they, they, they've remained pretty united when you think about it considering everything, the size of the family and the fact sure. that business, like it's actually, you know, they, they, they've, they've stayed, it could be worse is what I'm saying. Like I, if I, if I'm in the house with my sister for more than 12 hours or each other's throats, you know, like, and I love her, you know, I love her, but it's, it's hard to get along with, with family sometimes, you know, and, and this goes for every family. So they get a, I think that people that there's like a very strong anti-Gracie camp, right. And they, they give them a hard time over these things. But, you know, I think it's a matter of looking at yourself in the mirror and going, is my family that different? And if I had hundreds of cousins, would be really, would we all be really tight and agree on everything? And like highly unlikely. Would the family have clans and subclans? I'm like, yes, very likely. So it, they're just people, man. They, we, we say graces, but they're just people like me and you. And it's, there's nothing else to it. Is that common in Brazil or at least, during that baby boomer, the silent generation to have kids just to have a large subset of families? Because like, you know, I'm Filipino. I come, I'm half Filipino. I come from a post spice trade culture. So yeah. my, my grandparents were used to having eight, nine kids. Is that yeah. generational? Is that more both ethnic and cultural to Brazilian culture at that time? Well, Carlos had 21 children. That's unusual even for his generation. Like that's, that today will be the equivalent of having like eight kids today. You know, it's, it's still a lot. Like there are people that have like three, four and we're everyone like, whoa, that's a lot of kids, you know? Right. Well, my grandfather in Brazil, he had 11 siblings. He's from the same generation as Carlos. So 11, <laughs> that's still a lot, but like it's almost half of what Carlos had. And I think in the case of Carlos is... I mean, he, he was a, a promiscuous person. I don't mean this as an insult. Like, it, you know, Kayla Gracie, his, his daughter, makes that very, very clear in the biography. Sure. Making babies all over the place. Like, it doesn't matter who or when. Like, he's, he's just down to make more babies. And Armando tells us, like, he was very open. Like, very frank. This is Armando speaking, not me. He basically walk up to, like, young girls and go, like, hey, you want to have a baby with me? Like, straight up like that. Like, and he would, and he was so, according to Armando, he was so, 
he, I, he apparently had a lot of game. Like he was very convincing. And, you know, he had a lot of kids with a lot of different women and they, they somehow they all like stayed within you know, different mothers, but they all stayed, you know, within the, the family. And, you know, you can agree with that or disagree with that. Or like if that was intentional or not, I think we all want to have kids, but you know, I think when the, his case, I think he might've had a vision and I think you agree with it or not. I think he had a vision for his future and the future of the, the family. I think he wanted to create a legacy. And if you want to create a legacy, you need to have lots of kids. Like if a king wants his dynasty to be lasting, he better have as many male sons as possible. Everyone knows this. And what's true then is also true now. And I think that Carlos might have had that sort of mindset. And Helio, too. I mean, not as many as Carlos, but, like, you know, I, I think it was – but George had kids, too, but not that many. So I think it was mostly, mostly Carlos was the one that was just, like, 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 like a bunny, man. He's all over the place, you know. And, and I think it was <laughs> – I mean, it's his. I go, I'm two minds about. It. I think children are beautiful. <laughs> I wouldn't want that. I'm not 21 is, is a lot, but I, I think you, you have to give the guy some credit. You know, he had a vision and he stuck to it. You know, and you don't have to agree with the vision, but at the same time, like, wait a second, man, like this guy, he was trying to create something. I can admire the. the I, I admire ambitions. What I'm saying, like he, he was a very ambitious person, man. You know, I like to give people, even if I don't agree with the, the, the purpose of the ambition. Sorry, cut off a little bit. Kind of drive. Right. Um, it doesn't hurt either that they come from a privileged background, right? So you can risk or at least attempt to have that many kids because, you know, uh, it, it's, it's the, the people that come for, from a more impoverished background that has a ton of kids. That's, yeah. that's another level you know, as to what you're speaking about. Always wealthy. It's interesting because uh, there's a very good dissertation online. It's called The Gracie Clan and the Making of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I believe, by Joseto Ficaius. And in this, he talks about them being like, they're of Scottish descent. So if you're familiar with Latin America, anyone who's from European descent is light-skinned. They kind of see themselves. Brazil is very colonial in a lot of ways. Like, the colonial mindset lingers. Like, it seems like, oh, it's over. I'm like, yeah, it's over, but the, it's still ingrained in the psyche. So if you're white with a European name, you're really... You choose not, that. You're really not like everyone else, you know? And, and, and it's normal. I'll give you an example. Like, Brazilians, a very common thing in Brazil. Brazilians have, like, two names. They carry their maternal and paternal name, right? Surnames. They'll normally, if it's a Silva or Oliveira or Ferreira, one that's very Brazilian, it's normally associated with slaves and, and, and dark people with darker skin, they don't use it, even if it's the paternal name. But if the mom's name is like German or Italian, that's the name they're going to use. It's a very common thing in Brazil. They want to like dissociate themselves from like the, 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 the Brazilian name, right? The, more, the, the name's associated with people with darker skin. And the more European the name is, the more they use it. They're more likely to use it, right? It's... it's it's something you have. I mean, it's, it's, it's the details, but right? it says a lot about the stuff, the, the mindset of the people. And I think the Graces had that, that sort of like, we, we belong to a higher place in society, right? Like uh, Tufi calls it uh, the patrician ethos. And I just love those two words, patrician, like the ethics of the, of the patricians, right? But it wasn't always like that. There was, I think there was an aspiration and ambition to, to, to be, belong to a higher place in society. But they didn't always do great financially. It was there's a man who's very important in the history of jiu-jitsu. We're going to talk about him in the documentary. 
Um, and, you know, I, we later learned he actually trained and even taught jujitsu, but he was never known as a practitioner or instructor. But his name was Oscar Santa Maria, and he was basically BJJ's first sponsor. And if it were not for this man, BJJ would not exist. He was the guy that was footing the bill for a long time, in fact. And he, he had a great admiration for Carlos. They had a very close relationship. Um, you know, I don't mean this in, in a negative way, but it seems to me that Carlos manipulated him a lot too, like in, in order to, you know, get this guy to pay the bill and they have a fallout later. And the story, I'm not going to get into it, but it's not a very pretty one if you ask me. But this man was, he was the minister of finance in Brazil to give an idea. And he's really into Rosa Cruz, just like Carlos is. And Carlos was a very spiritual man. And, you know, he seemed to be able to manipulate Santa Maria into helping them a lot financially. It's interesting to see that once Santa Maria disappears from, you know, the, the, the history of the family, they, they're not doing so well again. It's like they do really well with the guy. And then, but it was an up and down thing for them. But, um, yeah, the having a lot of kids thing really did help them. I, I, in, in a way, I think it made BJJ possible too. I think that, you know, had Carlos had one or two kids, I'm not sure. I mean, we may not have had Carlson Gracie. We may have not have had Holes Gracie and Carlos Gracie Jr. Now, imagine BJJ. Can you imagine BJJ without Carlson Gracie, Holes Gracie, and Carlos Gracie Jr.? I can't. I yeah, can't. That, that, that's like the pillars. It's the oh, Mount God. Rushmore almost, you know? How do we if modern BJJ? Just those three out of the equation. Would we have BJJ? Even MMA? Would we have the UFC today? If you were also keeping that. Now he was the big name of the family throughout like a big chunk of its history. When Helio retires, it's Carlos Carlson that's like carrying the, the family's legacy on his back, right? So they've always had someone to carry the family's legacy. First George, and then Helio, and then Carlson, and then Holes, and then Hickson and Hoyce. So it's always been like they've always had like a big name to kind of, you know, be like this is now they have Roger like Roger. It's 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 crazy, but like they've had they've managed to maintain a one hundred year tradition of always having someone to like you know be the face of the family and be you know be incredible on the mats. And it's quite astounding when you think about it. It is he did create a dynasty. You don't have to like him, but you can't take it away from the man. He created a dynasty. You know, um, I love theory speak, so I'm just going to run this by you just for interest's sake. Just like uh, whiskey talk between people who train in jujitsu. But do you think if this is tied to your project, do you think if someone from an impoverished background would have sped up or would have had slowed or deterred the exposure of Brazilian jujitsu? It may have not existed. Hmm. You got to remember, like we see, we when we are told about BJJ's glorious past, right? We hear that story of Maeda teaching Carlos, who, depending on the account, passed it on to Helio, or Helio learned by watching, whichever account you want to believe in. And then, but it's it's a very glorious past. And Jiu-Jitsu did have a big moment in the 1930s, not because of the Gracie family. It's important to remember that Jiu-Jitsu was having a big moment around the world early in the 19th, uh, uh, the 20th century. This is going on in France, in England, in the United States. Uh, President Roosevelt was a big fan of it. You know, like it, th th there's a book out there, if you want to read it, if you understand this period, it's called Craze, The Life and Times of Jiu-Jitsu by Roberto Pedreira. There are two volumes out. There's a third volume coming out soon. And it talks about this, this craze of Jiu-Jitsu after the Russo-Japanese War. 
And the whole world is like, who are these people? Let's learn more about the Japanese. What is this beautiful art that allows a tiny little country to defeat the large Russia in a war? Like, how is that even possible? Right? And so jiu-jitsu has a big moment early in the 20th century. Now, in Brazil, that moment was extended into the 1930s and 40s with continuous waves of Japanese immigrants going to Brazil. Remember, Brazil is the largest recipient of Japanese immigrants anywhere else in the world. It was the United States, it was the United States until 1924, after the Asian Exclusion Act, it becomes Brazil, right? It was Brazil in the U.S., and later it becomes Brazil. And Brazil is very welcoming of Japanese. And because of this, like, there's a big moment there. But, you know, somewhere in the 19, late 1940s, it slow, starts slowing down, and then you see the Kimura fight with Helio is like this last great moment of, you know, what we now call Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but is it's really just Brazilians practicing Judo in a different way. And that, it kind of dies. It's dead. 1950s, it's dead. 60s, it's dead. 70s, it's dead. 80s, it's dead. Now, there were practitioners, but it was, was very niche, like mainly Rio and a little bit in Manaus. Like, you know, you had these small little centers everywhere, but it almost dies. And, I mean, Valetudo kept the, the, the name of the Gracie family relevant at least in the fighting circles for a long time, but it wasn't BJJ. Now they had a federation, but it was very, it was, it was not practiced by a lot of people. I grew up in Brazil and I had never heard about jiu-jitsu or the Gracie family until Hoist Gracie came about. And, and I'm from Sao Paulo. I had a chat with Marcio Pejipano, two time absolute world champion. He's a legend in the sport. And he was telling me that in the nineties in Rio de Janeiro, when he was a kid, he did not know the difference between jiu-jitsu and ninjutsu. It was like something for ninjas. Like he had no idea what it was. And I thought, in Rio, <laughs> like I had never heard of it. And he's in Rio. And that shocked me. Because I'm from Sao Paulo. You expect that, right? But Rio is the epicenter of, of, of jiu-jitsu practice. Everyone always knows always know that. And Beji Pano was telling me, like, dude, I didn't hear about it until, like, like mid-90s. And that's when I was like, wow. So it really was dead. You know, it, it's, it, if it were not for, like, the, the, the 91 Valetudo between Jiu-Jitsu with the Libre revives it a little bit, and then 93 Hoist really puts it on the map. But, I mean, that coincides with my own experience. Like, it was Hoist Gracie. They got the, the thing going in Brazil as well. You know, the difference is Brazil had practitioners. Ironically, many of them had not put a black belt on in 20 years. They went on to have different professions. When Hoist, you know, won the UFC, all of a sudden – they came back and they were red belts. <laughs> right. So and due, due to wanting to not necessarily leech on, but latch on to that exposure, right? I mean, you can't blame them. If you're teaching an art that no one wants to practice, when the world wants to do judo, karate, and kung fu, because they're watching Hollywood movies and because the government is like, like supporting judo, you know, and you're struggling financially, I mean, can you, can you blame them? for not wanting to teach something that's not financially viable. I don't, I mean, I, we would be idealistic. I like, yeah, in a perfect world, they'd be on the mats every day, but is that realistic for them to be on the mats every day? You know, teaching and something, I mean, training perhaps, but like teaching, I don't blame them. And, but they did come back in the nineties, they come back and they wanted their stripes and it wasn't just one or two because <laughs> they hadn't trained in a long time, but they got their stripes because that's how the system works. But it's a flawed system, you know, because it's not based off attendance. It's based off of time. So you can literally be in bed and get striped if you can manage to stay alive long enough, you know. And 
Um, but it, it is what it is, man. It wasn't perfect, man. That's one thing that kept coming across at me. Like, there's no idealistic, noble past. And judo, too. This book, Craig, talks about Jigoro Kano and the formation of judo. It's not that pretty. I mean, he's, he's a visionary. Like, he's ambitious. He's, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't, in some ways, he, he, he was like cars in the sense where he had the ambition to create something, which you can admire the ambition, but... You know, he was, uh, it's interesting fact, like, Jigoro Kano was promoting people before he was promoted. I just, mm. he was, like, handing out certificates. There were no belt belts, was like, they came later, right? But a certificate was a big deal, a diploma. He was handing out diplomas of his own style before he had a diploma himself. He only has a diploma of Kito Ryu. That's the only diploma he has. And he received that after he had already promoted some other people which is interesting. Like he was basically created his own style prior to ever being promoted. This is like promoting someone a black belt without ever having been, having received a black belt, you know? So, I mean, you, you can, if you dig, look, if you look hard enough, you're going to find something to be critical of in anyone's behavior. And this is true for me, for you, for Carlos Gracie, for Jigoro Kano, for Mitsui Maeda. And I like that. I much prefer that approach to history than the ideally idealized one because you don't have an honest present and future unless you look at the past critically and honestly. And I think that's a first step for an honest present and an honest future. How much of, cause you know, you've mentioned before that you have like the strong archeological interest. How much of that helped you with this project or deter you? Because even like old co-hosts in radio, I, I can sense if someone's bullshitting and trying to hype themselves up behind the mic, right? And as, you know, in an archaeological frame of mind, you're almost binary. It's like, no, 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 that's not the truth. Okay, let's cut. Let's wrap up the set. Or did you have to, you know what? Let me get an audio bite for this project since I already set it up. So, for example, like with a lot of our interviewees, like they didn't know what they were talking about. And then we, I knew that they were wrong. And like, but sometimes I did, sometimes I did and I had to learn, but you know, it, that, that's why I had to improvise and become like some of what a historian as well. Not only do we have historians consulting uh, with us, but you know, I had to become somewhat of a historian myself. I mean, I have a bachelor's degree in history, but I'm not a professional historian and I have not amassed nearly the amount of hours that some of these researchers and historians have over the course of their lives. As I always say this, I always like to emphasize this, I parachuted into the story and I had to learn filmmaking, budget making, and, and historical. like, I, I'm a jujitsu coach, you know, I kind of, but, you know, I don't mind the lessons. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's difficult because we had to filter out the truth, you know, and for, for us to do that, we had to check our sources because I didn't want to be inaccurate. Like from the beginning, the, the approach was always one that was, academically oriented as possible and truthful as possible and, and move away from the extraordinary and stick to the facts. And if, and, and, you know, loving the facts, not the result, not, not trying to bend the facts and select them. So a certain narrative comes out at the end, one that suits us and one that we enjoy and we like, and we prefer if it were that way, but let's look at them and go, what happened? So follow a different thread. Like that was the objective. And, and like I mentioned earlier, it was a difficult thing to do because we are biased. You know, I, I, it's funny because I, I, I've been accused of being pro and anti-Gracie. I've been accused of being <laughs> anti-American. 
I've also been accused of being pro and anti-Brazilian. I suspect by the time this film is done, I'm going to be accused of being pro-Japanese. And <laughs> I swear I don't have any Japanese blood. <laughs> There's no one Japanese in my family. But if that's what comes across, that's what comes across. And we shouldn't be you know, concerned with it. It's, if that's the end of the result, it got us here. And if we love jiu-jitsu, we should love the history that got us here, regardless of it being our idealized you know, version of, of history. It, it is what it is. You have to accept it and learn from it. So is it a fervor? It's almost like a religious fervor. I'm going to make you Catholic. This pursuit of raising it. I haven't seen the film. I, just for the listening and viewing audience, Robert has not shared any footage with me. From what I feel, it, it, it's kind of like tipping the scale to be even and give props to the Japanese, right? When you're doing this project, is it fervor for the truth or is it fervor for like, hey, I've I've suspected this for a while. The Japanese need more props and credit to this. And and, and I I was worried about that. I was worried that my, my, you know, pursuit of, you know, if I am correct in pursuing the and going in the right direction, maybe I might have unknown biases, right? I'm perfectly willing to admit that. But if the pursuit is that, then the story that comes across is very pro-Japanese. You have to give the Japanese were not given their due credit. Right. Uh, at the same time, when I'm, lo- when I'm reading, learning more about the history of Jigoro Kano and the formation of judo, you know, I, I pointed out that like, oh, I think Jigoro Kano makes some mistakes. And it's it's funny because like when I started giving interviews, I started getting a lot of momentum within the judo crowd. So a lot of the judo crowd like they're loving me. They want to have me on their podcast, especially in Brazil, because. They're like, oh, see, we knew that all along because I'm a jiu-jitsu black belt, right? And I'm confirming what they've always suspected. Now they love me. But then I decided to make some criticism of Jigoro Kano on there. So now they're, <laughs> I'm not sure they like me anymore. <laughs> but it's, like, it's, it's because it goes like this. Like, Jigoro Kano makes, and Kodokan, they make what I consider to be tactical mistakes in eliminating the ground, right? By, by sure. limiting the ground, they allowed space for BJJ to exist not to mention have a less complete martial art. Now, that's not an insult. That's not an attack. It's not the intention, but it's just pointing out something. It's, I mean, it's in hindsight, it's easier to see, but it, it's, it was a mistake. There's no way out of it. So I don't have an issue being critical um, of, of, the, of judo if, if we have to. And it's, this is my analysis, not so much as a historian, but even as a practitioner, professional fighter, coach, I think Jigoro Kano's understanding of self-defense was – Maybe for the time it was advanced, but like looking back now, like he was incorrect about a lot of things. Like grabbing someone and throwing them is not a great form of self-defense against multiple opponents. Like he had a prejudice against the ground. It was very obvious that he, you know, he preferred throws, probably because he was better at them. Normally we prefer the things that we are good at and we dislike the things that we're not good at. So, you know, and then in some ways we can critical of, of, of judo too. But the one thing that, you know, the, the big transformation was seeing in, in judo and which is, I think is a feature of Japanese society, uh, a respect um, that I don't see in BJJ either in Brazil or in the United States. There was this, there's this, the, the, the respect, the hierarchy, the, the, the ethics on the mats I wish Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu had that. We don't have it. We're very orphaned of a philosophy. We don't. You mean like nobility and the martial culture of it, the ranking caste system, honoring that? Like when we went to the Kosen Judo schools in Japan, the students were showing, the black belts, black belts were showing up 30 minutes early 
to sweep the mats. Mm. You know what would happen if I'd ask one of my paying students to sweep the mats for me before class? They're like, like oh no, I'm going to yelp Professor Drysdale right now. This respects this. It's, it's an honor culture, and it's very much alive there. And I came, I always, says, I always felt that there was something missing in Jiu-Jitsu. I didn't quite know what it was. And I had been to Japan many times before, but this was the first time where I went there with more critical and thinking eyes. And I went there not as a tourist, not as a coach, not as someone you know trying to make money from seminars. I went there trying to understand our history. And I, 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 I fell in love with that aspect of Judo, and I wish we had more of that. And I look at BJJ today and I look at the trash talking. I was just looking at some posts on, on, on Flow Grappling. And they have like, like nine-year-old kids posing with their gi open, right? Like making them superheroes on the internet. And I'm looking They're learning at, that from their, spirit, their seniors. And I'm looking at that. I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I feel I'm split. And there's a part of me that wishes that BJJ had been absorbed by judo. Because judo has superior values in the store. There's no way out of that. Unless you don't believe in values. And they said, look, look, money's the only thing that matters. Popularity, money, make it, you know, capitalism. Go, that's the only thing that matters in the world. That's the only thing that matters to you. And then, okay, you know, that's, that kid is on the right track. <laughs> he's, he's doing all the right things, you know. But if you do believe in other things, uh, I think, and as we should, we should. I think that there are other more important things in life than just being financially successful. You know, in that case, I think that we're in our infancy. We're like prehistorical compared to judo. We're so far behind on the kind of respect that I saw. I can't imagine someone doing that in a judo tournament. But it's it's become kind of the norm, you know. And the, the, the BJ has become such a narcissistic sport. There's a part of me that doesn't want to be in it anymore. I mean, I love the art, but there's a part of me. And I love MMA, too, but MMA is even worse. So it's like, okay, BJ is not too bad. Well, I'm going to start doing judo then. We're like, I suck at judo. <laughs> I have to start from scratch. But, but it's also pretty hard on the body, right? And, and like, you know, it, exactly. Um, but there's, there's, I'm like, personally, man, what comes from this documentary, and this probably, this won't be in the film, but me personally, as a practitioner, I'm split in a lot of ways. Because I don't like the direction BJJ is going. And I've come to admire the Japanese and the way they practice martial arts greatly. And I think that's part of Jigoro's Kano's vision, and we, we should commend him for that because I think he saw in martial arts, she saw martial arts as a means for education, not just learning how to fight and defend yourself. You it's know, a systematic, systematic scholastic approach, right? Yes. And, and, and today, martial arts in the West, both MMA and BJJ, it is not about education. It is not about improving on people. It's not about values. It has become of how quickly can you make money and do what you got to do to make that money, which is a value. I'm not denying the importance of it. I just don't think it's the only one. Neither do I think it's the most important one. But, but, but let me ask you, did you ever run into any sour Japanese people? Not, not, I don't mean that in like, hey, Wuhan virus, China virus. No, I don't mean it in that aspect. I mean, like, there, there has to be some people from Japan that go like, yeah, man, the Brazilians bit that from us. You know, did, did you experience that? Or were they were pretty noble about it and give, giving credit to the Brazilians? We, we, we had like, um, 
Keenan on our podcast, you know, he coined the term America. Actually, he didn't coin it much over, but, you know, he, he's been, you know, making a push for it. And I, I can see what he's saying. I have my disagreements, but I, I like him. And I'm, I don't have an issue disagreeing with people. You know, people are free to disagree. And I think he does have a point there. I'm not, I don't think they're different enough, but it's interesting that, you know, the Japanese have a much stronger claim towards the ownership of something. Sure. You don't see them battling for it. Like you see Brazilians battling for BJJ. And now you're seeing like there's, there's, you see Americans battling for AJJ and the Japanese who have the strongest claim don't say a word. And I, I was expecting some animosity from Japanese and maybe like some bitterness or anything like that. Basically saying you guys copied it from us and you know, you never give us credit for it. Right. It was none of that. It was the contrary. Like it, the Japanese from all accounts, when, when, when they saw that there was, there was a, uh, uh, an aspect of judo that had survived in Brazil completely independently from Kodokan, they were astonished, right? But they could they they were confused as to why Brazilians were calling it jujitsu when it was clearly judo. It was judo. Like, what, what, why are you calling jujitsu? Because jujitsu is something much older, and it has nothing to do with what we practice. What we practice is niwaza. End of discussion. We just got better than the Japanese at it eventually, not, not initially, but later we did. I mean, when I say we, I see it all BJJ practitioners. Um, but, like, it's not jiu-jitsu. But the Japanese were quite shocked that we were calling jiu-jitsu, but they have no issues calling it Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So Yuki Nakai is the president of the Japanese-Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation. I think that's an, that's an incredible term. Think about it. He is the Japanese president of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation. Like, the, the humility to accept it. Right, and they have a much stronger case than anyone else. Why not JJJ, Japanese Jiu Jitsu? I mean, they have a stronger case than all of us, right? Brazilians and Americans. But uh, there was none of that. Uh, there's a very beautiful quote from Nakai, um, probably one of my favorite quotes from the book, if not my favorite. And I asked them, you know, with a translator, you know, we, we had our questions written down, translator asking the question, what were like, what was it like for the Japanese seeing, you know, learning about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu? And he said there was an element of shock because they had no idea. There's an element of surprise because um, I, I'm shocked and surprised because they had no idea. And then there's an element of, of fear, like, oh, these guys are really good. You know, but there was also like he describes a sentiment of nostalgia and uh, of a feeling of knowing that they had something special that was valued prior to the war but had died out in Japan. It's like barely survived through Kosen Judo. Even though it was sophisticated, it wasn't widely practiced because no one considered it to be important. And he felt that, you know, it had to be exported back to them, like, you know, reverse exported, you know, imported, imported back to them through Brazilians for them to value something they had always had, something that was theirs initially, right? And he said it so beautifully. And, and it made me think, like, wow, they acknowledge. It's like, this is Yuki Nakai acknowledging that, yeah, like, we messed up by neglecting this. There was a lot of depth to this. This is a beautiful art. Like, there's a lot of efficiency here. Whether you look at it as a sport point of view or from a self-defense point, no matter how you look at it, you can't tell me a rear naked choke is not a great move. You can't tell me that guard is not a good position to be in in case you end up on bottom. It doesn't matter how you spin it. Like, it, there was a neglect for Niwaza in judo. And Yuki Nakai acknowledging that, coming from a Kosen Judo background, I thought it was beautiful. You know, I thought it was, uh, and, and it was, he was very humble about it. Like, there was no, 
you know, you, you don't see that. They don't, it, it, I, I appreciated it. Like I learned a lot during that trip. And I think some of my most cherished memories throughout my life will be, you know, learning about the roots of our sport, not just technically, but culturally. And it's a shame that we lost so much of it. It really is. Do you feel there's a big reasoning? I, I had a theory as to why Hickson didn't beat the crap out of Yuki Nakai in, in that choke documentary. Yeah. Do you feel well, like being, you know, a mixed martial artist, a jujitero, do you think Hickson could detect the respect that Yuki had for him and that's why he respected him that much and they're both these martial cultured warriors? I don't know. I think that if you're a grappler, your immediate reaction is to choke before you punch, if you can. If you don't choke right away, it's because it's not there, right? And I think I think he knew, I speculated here, I really don't know, that Yuki had lost an eye or was going to lose an eye. And I think he went, why do more damage to the man? Because I think any decent human being would look at something like that. And you cannot, there's no other way other than to greatly admire Yuki Nakai's courage. There's no way out of that. You have to greatly admire him. Like almost to the point where it's like verging on like, man, you're, you've lost your mind. You're going to lose an eye if you keep going. You could, he could have saved the eye from what I understand, but instead he chose to fight and go back in there and knowing that he was going to lose an eye. But like, man, the honor, the courage, right? And I think, you know, this is a silent language of warriors. You, you respect it. Like the trash talking is so unfortunate because deep down you know that people, fighters respect one another. There's a reason why you kill yourself in the gym to fight someone. You have a deep respect for the other person. They are a mirror to yourself. Like that's me on the other side, right? So I think that there might have been an element of, um, what's the word? Not just respect, but... Um, Kinship or... Nightly honor, like let's say, like this is one warrior to the other, like I'll put you away and I'm not going to do the least amount of damage to your face as possible because you've already lost an eye. And at that point, I, maybe it wasn't clear that he was going to lose an eye. I'm not sure the details of the story, but, you know, um, I, I think fighters have that deep down, like even if they act like they hate each other, deep down there is that kind of, there's that respect for, for someone who loves and does the same thing you do. Because the reason why I bring that up, because you have Hoyler, who is like the Nogi darling, right, uh, of, of the early ADC, ADCC and the young pitbull of, of that Helio lineage. And Hoyler is like, beat the fuck out of him, you know, punch him in the eye. And then Hickson was just more like, no, 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 no I'm not going to do that. And then, you know, it, it just... It just feels like such a great moment for me to watch that. And it just increased, like with Yoji Anjo, Hickson is like, hey, man, if we're fighting for money, you tap, I'll stop. But if we're fighting for pride, I dictate when we stop, you know? And which, you know, there's very few that I see as samurais. Like, I think Jean-Jacques Machado is a samurai, you, you yourself. So it, it's, I, I now have clarity and affirmation to what you're saying about martial culture and respect for the Japanese because it is becoming like a boxing gym, NBA street, you know, culture where it's like, look, dude, look at me, look at me, dude, dude, I get, I got you. So I, I understand. And you affirmed it in this live moment, by the way. In Western and, and Asian cultures, um, 
in, in terms of in relation to martial arts, right? Like we, we are learning and we are learning for our lesson from boxing and pro wrestling, not from judo. Right, like I and, and BJJ finds itself in a very strange position in history, very strange time, because we are kind of at the crossroads, and that's and you see this this different approach that people like like uh, like GSP and Connor have, for example. A GSP to me embodies the, the 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 side of respect and honor, and he's a truly a martial artist, and he says that I'm not a fighter, I'm a martial artist, and I love that he says that because there is a distinction. Uh, with with, with Conor, he's not a martial artist in that sense of the word. He's, he's a phenomenal fighter, but he's not a martial artist in, in, in the same way GSP is. And we, we're watching BJJ in that crossroad now. And what way we're going to go? I think it's going to become ever more like boxing and pro wrestling. Unfortunately, I don't see us going back to you know something that's like, oh, let's be. Let's teach our children good values. Let's worry about educating the next generation of practitioners so they're actually better human beings, not just really good at fighting. But the, the, the mindset now is like, ah, be good, be successful, make your money, boom, done. You made it. Success. Killed it, right? I think it's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's a problem well beyond martial arts. It's a cultural issue that goes well beyond fighting. You know? Societal, right? It's a civilizational problem. We, we're living in a, in a time where it is ha, has become the only value. And I think that long-term will have a lot of negative effects. And we're watching it. Like, depression is through the roof. Suicide is through the roof, right? I think that comes with a lot of problems. And But, you know, who am I to just – I'm just an observer. Like, I, I wouldn't want that for my kids. I wouldn't want to teach them that, you know. But it doesn't mean that I don't – you know, I, I still like – I still like – for fighters to get paid well, I think it's fair that they put that much time into something that they're rewarded, even if not millions of dollars, that they're getting something back for for their efforts, right? And and then a lot of martial arts, like how many rich wrestlers do you know? People that got rich wrestling. I know phenom- and wrestling is hard, man. Yeah, you injure yourself intentionally. It is brutal. It's one of the hardest things. It really is one of the hardest things you ever do in your life. I mean – I think training wise, it's even harder than MMA. Like wrestling practices are brutal, right? And what do they get from it other than the practice itself? Like it would, like I think that these guys should be rewarded for for their efforts, right? And I mean, it is what it is, man. Like I being aware of this has been definitely a result of of the the making of the film because these are not things I was I was thinking about three years ago. I become more aware of these things after I start getting involved in the film like thinking about the origins of BJJ and then you become more critical and you have like a sort of like a different view on things. And, you know, I, there's, there's good and bad, um, you know, and, and the film is not going to get too much into it because we only have 90 minutes to work, but we, we wanted to touch on some of these differences and, and explain the separation, you know, as best we could with the town, the time that has been given us, which is, I mean, 90 minutes is already beyond, um, documentary films like normally documentary films are supposed to be within an hour right we at one of our scripts we were at like just over two hours which is very long for a film so we had to cut a lot unfortunately did you find that as a good problem to have having to trim so much good fat as a practitioner as someone who's curious about history and and likes the study of history like i can get lost in the Brazilian National Library. If I had the time, I can do that for 12 hours a day straight. I actually enjoy it. 
going through old newspapers. Sounds like hell for most people. I actually enjoy it. It's fun to me because when you find something, it's very rewarding. So any kind of any any kind of knowledge to me is fun. I like learning. I'm like, oh, I just got another piece of the puzzle, and you understand the puzzle better. But yeah, it's um, you know, it's uh, it's 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 been a journey of, of learning. Like I, I enjoy the process. I enjoy the the search. But it makes you question a lot of the things that you consider to be, you know, it makes me you question your your, your jujitsu journey in a lot of ways. You know, I'm trying to explain this. You know, like we I think in a lot of ways we we're far behind in in in, in terms of values and, and, and the ethics. You know, I know I've said that before, but I'm trying to make a point here. I'm sorry, I can't try to put it I'm having a hard time expressing it. Well, yeah, because your 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 cup is so full of both learned knowledge and emotion. You know, that's what comes with the territory when you learn so much, so much. It's it's like a delicious buffet of bone and ribeye. You know, it's amazing. Are you in the moment yeah. of appreciation? Or are you yeah. still exhausted from the production? Oh no, no, I I, I enjoy the work, man. Like I, you know, I. I as soon as we hang up here, I'm probably going to go back to work on the computer. <laughs> I'll let you go soon. No, 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 I'm not in a rush, but I'm not doing anything. So don't worry about it. Um, but it, it has been a bit of a buffet. Like it's been a lot of information to digest, but I think as a person, I, I, I've learned a lot from this. I've really enjoyed this process because, you know, I think that I've had some deeply held beliefs about history in general, not just history of jujitsu. And I understand the historical process better. I understand research better. I understand the importance of skepticism better, right? Like I've learned to be very suspicious of anything that's on the internet. Like you can't trust anything that's on the internet. That's unfortunate because 90% of it is correct, even 95% of it. But that 5% throws your story completely off. So you really got to check your sources. And even like having a bachelor's in history, I started a master's. I never really finished my master's, but for for you know number of like bureaucratic reasons but i feel like i've learned a lot about becoming a, a better historian through this film like when i when people send me like youtube videos i'm like oh that's a great video show me the primary sources right and if they're in japanese i got to get a japanese translator to can't understand it you can't like oh this is what happened in japan during that period says who you know says who so you know, it, it makes like, so what do I know about Japan? I don't read Japanese primary sources because I you stop believing everything you hear now. Like, I don't believe a thing unless you give me a primary source or, or you ha show me someone that's actually be able to translate that literally so I can interpret it, right? So you become very, very skeptic towards the information that people are giving you. And I, I ask people, I recommend people that watch the film instead of, simply believe in me or believe in the film. I'm like, please do your research. Spend an afternoon going over some of these sources. I have talked about them at length. They're out there and they're not difficult to find. I mean, if you're unfamiliar, it might take you more than an afternoon to figure it out. But like the information is out there. You'll find it, right? With the age of the internet, it's not that hard to find this information. But I, I would prefer someone questioning us because of our lack of rigor than someone agreeing with us just because they think they should or they all oh, trust in me and go and Rob's done his research. Like, no, man, I question us. Like we, we do your own research. Like people have to do that. If you want to have an opinion on something, you have to have a level of understanding of it. 
And I thought I understood BJJ history two years ago. I thought I understood it one year ago. And now I think I do. And I think in a year I'll have a completely new understanding. But there's definitely been an evolution of the understanding of not only jiu-jitsu, but history in general. It, now you're a podcaster, broadcaster, storyteller. Was there any technical inkling to go, you know what, I'm going to pick up a, a camera. I'm going to learn ISO, aperture, framing. Did that ever hit you? You know, it's funny, like uh, our videographer, his name is uh, uh, Steve Jeter. He's like an award-winning documentary filmmaker. He's got an eye for for photography that's incredible. Like he'll see things that, you know, are completely trivial to most people. And he would just like film it and he'll put it like, and it just looks absolutely stunning when you look at it and, and you know, when you watch it, because he's such a talented guy. And... I would like a lot of times, like when he would be like filming stuff, I'm like, I wonder, I would just follow him around, right? And I start seeing what he's seeing. So I'll stand right behind him and watching what he's doing. And like, I actually think I have a much better eye for photography now. <laughs> I, I mean, not professional, but like you can see what he's looking for and why, right? And there's a story behind like objects sometimes. There's a, like, you know, framing things and trying to get a picture to tell something that has emotion to it. And it's easy to miss because these things are around us all the time. We just miss it because we take them for granted. Now, being a good photographer, like, you have to have an eye for that. And I've developed a whole new appreciation for photography as well. So just, you know, just like kind of like copying his, like, he'd go in and he'd film something and leave. And I'd stand in the same place and take a picture and look at it later. I'm like, oh, wow, that was a really good picture, Rob. <laughs> you know, just stealing his spot. But, um, yeah, it was fun, man. Like it's it's everything's been like I, I editing is a lot of work. I don't want to even like the not worst even, part. Yeah, I mean I look. I haven't done any of it. Just like hearing them talk about it, it's like man, it sounds like a nightmare. But it's yeah, I like filmmaking. Like I, I've said that I would never get involved in this again. Uh, I think that it's possible that I do. I just need a little break. But sure. maybe in the future, I'll do something. I don't know what. Yeah, what, what did it spin any other interest? Because, you know, Tony Bourdain, you know, he's like this culturalist, foodie guy, and he was starting to dive into, hey, maybe I should storytell about BJJ, right? But is, is there any other interest that, that's spinning, or are you still so focused into putting out the film? Uh, you know, I, it's funny, throughout the film, like, I've had, like, a lot of ideas. Oh, we got to do this film next. You know, like, I had the idea of, a documentary about Carlson Gracie, just about Carlson Gracie, right? I've heard some people in Brazil are working on it. I don't know if it's true or not, but um, Carlson Gracie deserves a documentary. I thought of a documentary about the history of Luta Livre, even though it has a very much smaller uh, audience than BJJ does. It's a very interesting story as well because it's the history of Brazilian catch wrestling. So it's very, it has, it suffers the influence of not only American catch wrestling, but also Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So, you know, in, indirectly from judo as well right so it's an interesting story the history of mma the equivalent of close guard for mma you know mm, there's a that lot would be amazing probably use some of the same footage because a lot of our questions were aimed at the overlapping between the history of bjj and the history of mma or volitudo um i think there's a lot of different ways you can approach this like there's a lot like look the history of koto khan is a documentary in and of itself you know the the, the history of japanese immigration that's a documentary the history of the rubber boom in the Amazon. That's like, I mean, Maeda is a documentary. Maeda is a fascinating character to me. Right? You know, he was accused three times of being an agent for the Japanese empire. 
He was accusing the United States and Cuba and Brazil of the same thing, basically doing intelligence work for the Japanese emperor. And there's no evidence for it. But I do think it's fascinating that the man gets accused of three things in three different countries, or through, uh, accused of the same thing in three different countries, right? So no matter how you look at it, man, like Maeda's a fascinating character. He's a very interesting guy. Uh, who else? I mean, the, the history of all the Japanese judokas traveling through South America in the circus. Uh, you can make a movie about this, man. Like, it's it's great story. It's, I mean, it's incredible. If, if you learn about their travels, and I, I've only touched on this briefly, it's very interesting. Like, they're just adventurers. They're out there. Uh, they're living the life. Just imagine traveling the world early in the 20th century. Traveling the world today is exciting. Sure. Then it would have been something epic. It would have been something like, this is like a Marco Polo-like adventure. You're from Japan and you end up in the Brazilian Amazon fighting in jiu-jitsu and circuses. Like, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great story when you think about it. When we, we take these things for granted. But when you, you put ourselves in their shoes, where what the world was like then, the fact these Japanese immigrants would make it to places like Washington and Cuba and the Brazilian Amazon and travel through South America and Europe. And jiu-jitsu was huge in Europe. And they're all over the place. It's a really cool story. Sounds like you caught the storytelling bug, my friend. I like it, man. I, I just wish I were better at it. Like, I couldn't do this alone. I, I always say this. Oh, you're way too humble. You're turning Japanese on me, brother. You're way too self-effacing, man. No, man, but it's true. Like, I, I, I really did parachute to all of this. I, there are historians out there that know a lot more than I do. I don't know a thing about film. I'm learning. I mean, I might give myself a blue belt. I'm not sure my team would give me a blue belt. Maybe a three-stripe white belt, put it like that. <laughs> because you learn along the way, and now I understand the process better, and I know a lot of the mistakes that I make. I mean, I still don't know how to edit and, you know, but I, I know what the, the, the phases that, that go into doing, you know, getting involved in the project like this. I like storytelling. I, I like telling history accurately. I'm more, to me, it's, I'm more on the documentary information slash lesson side of things than the aesthetics of a documentary. But it's important that film is also entertaining, not just informative. So, you know, me coming from a very, like, history-oriented mind, you know, as, as academic as the story can be, let's tell it truthfully. If people don't like it, that's their problem. That's me. That's my mind, right? And thankfully, we had a team of people on the other side that are like, no, man, it's got to look good. You know, it's got to be, there's a way to combine the two and it's going to look good. And then people are going to like it even more and more people are going to watch it and you get more people to know the story, Right. And I was very reluctant to, to accept this because to me, the way I think is like, it's all about the information. Who cares if it's said well, if the, if the image and the music is good, like, I don't care about that stuff. But it was such an important balance for our team to find. And I'm happy that we've, I think we finally found a balance. And I think the end result is something that's both, you know, informative and, and pleasing to watch. So it's, you know, it's not going to be something that's going to drag and be slow, you know. So it sounds like there was a little bit of a novelist versus binary factual based, not so much a clash, but you know, a videographer is going to want to make it a novel. A, a historian storyteller wants to be factual about it. So at least it worked out, you know, I mean, cause that's, that's true. What you, what you just described, it was, it, it was a, a difficult process because of different perspectives and they're both correct. Sure. They're right. And wrong here. This is, 
You know, it's, it's a historical documentary. It is an education documentary. It's meant to teach. But I think that, you know, one, I think this is a problem in academia is that academia is so removed from the general public that there's a disconnect. There's no connection between, when you think about it, they're the greatest minds in the world. Like, now why is, why is, why are we listening to Kim Kardashian? Like, give me a good reason why we're listening to any of these people. Like, we, we shouldn't, but we have great minds in universities all over the world and we don't listen to them. I believe there's a disconnect between these minds and the general public. And part of it has to do with that their language has become so, they've gone so far down the rabbit hole with their, uh, with their research that they, they can't even communicate with the public anymore. So we have to look at ways of creating a bridge between science and the general public. We have to way of look at how do we get these, how do we get the world listening to the greatest minds of the world? Because I truly believe that if we were listening to these people, the world would be a better place. They're specialists. You know, we, 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 we have to start like asking historians of like, what about, what about, uh, what, what moment in history are we living in? What is happening now? And when you draw lessons from the past, you're better, you're able to better understand the present and the future. Is that no one thinks they have anything to say because we think the past are a bunch of dates. They don't mean anything, right? So this disconnect is something that I, I believe that film has the ability to bridge that. Like film is an introduction to historical inquiry. It is, doesn't replace serious work, but it does, it can't, it has the potential to work as a bridge, right? Because the age of ADHD that we're living in where everyone just, I mean, try to get 30 seconds of someone's attention online. It isn't like, no one's going to give you 30 seconds. I mean, you, you see people that are, are practically like posing naked on Instagram to get attention. Like you got to do crazy stuff, man. You got to do something that's incredibly funny, incredibly witty. Or like if, you know, if you're a hot girl, just like be posing like with your ass out to get someone to give, give you attention. Like how do you do, how do you make history interesting? That's an uphill battle. We're up against, I mean, we're up, look at what we're up against, man. Like TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and the media and the coronavirus. You think people are going to stop to listen, to read a history book? I, but I think film is the closest thing to bridge that. Like, you know, I think people are curious. I think people are deep down. They want to learn. People like to, I've never heard of someone that doesn't like to learn. Sometimes they don't like to learn about this topic or that topic, but it's been so poorly introduced to the public that people look at history and go like, Oh, I don't want to learn about that. Sounds boring when it, it is fascinating. It's just, uh, it's just not presented in a way that is digestible to people. And I, you know, once again, film, the idea with our film at least was to, to create that connection, right? To create a common thread between the two. Uh, I have like four quick fire. Yes, no questions. So it's kind of like a tease and promo for your project. So hopefully these are, Yes, no questions. If you want to elaborate, fine, but I don't want you to accidentally give away so much. Okay, quick fire. Without giving anything away, did you find a lot of conflation of credit given orally? Yes. Okay. Are we going to find out more about other Japanese people deserving credit outside of Maeda? Or is that too much? Oh yeah, no. That's uh, many yeses. <laughs> okay, are we going to find out that there's more than just the Gracies responsible for the art in Brazil, or is that too much? Well, it's not too much. But can I answer? Can I expand on the yes a little bit? Please, please, of course. 
Yes, but the Gracie family is still at the center. I mean, let me rephrase that. Yes, but the Gracie brothers, not the family, the Gracie brothers, Helio, Carlos, and George are still at the center of all of it. There's, you can't take them out of the center. Okay, so just more. Okay. Are there any bridge-burning video assets? A lot more. Oh, okay. Are th- Sorry, uh, the video just cut off. Can you hear me? Okay. The audio just... Could you say something, Robert? Meet me out. One, two, there, you go, there you go. Good. Are there any bridge-burning video assets that didn't make the cut? Uh, there's, a, there's, there's one... Um, I mean, there's a few of them, really. There's some things that just won't make it to the film. Uh, some things that are just, on the, you know, they're verging on too politically incorrect or too damaging to, I guess some of it, like, escaped. I'm sorry to be all beyond yes or no. but No, no, it's fine. I love it. That's why we're not going to use it. We wanted to stick to things that, you know, they answer the question, why BJJ? What is the origin of BJJ? Anything that escapes that thread didn't make the film. Okay. Uh, hopefully a short answer. This may not be yes or no uh, because you're such a eloquent, loquacious speaker. Will not only Jujiteros be happy, but will Brazilians be happy with this doc? Uh, or is that not applicable? Yeah, can, uh, okay, I, I'm going to have to definitely expand on more than a yes or no. Sure, one. sure, of course. Uh, can, can I expand on the question? Sure, sure, go ahead. Okay, meaning is the product to be proud of because it's coming out of Brazil or because you, Brazilians were creators of, or Brazilians are integral to making and refining an art? I mean, you, you can't, I mean, Brazil added more than just, I mean, it, it was, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is really, I see, I'm, I pay more attention at the culture now than the technique. To me, it was, it was more of a cultural change than it was a technical change from what the Japanese did. In technical terms, there was no revolution until much, much later. And even so, they were still doing things the Japanese had already done decades before. It was nothing new. It was just Brazilians began to do it better after a certain point. But for most of its history, that wasn't the case. But there was a major cultural change. Uh, and I think that there's some people, to answer your, your, the, 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 the first part of your question, there's some people that aren't going to like it because they can't remove their, their nationalistic hat off. Like they can't take that hat off and just look at things objectively. You know, like I, I refer to people like that. You're, you're a cheerleader. You're not a patriot. You're not like, you're not being loyal to your clan. You're just being a cheerleader. Because if you look, if you start denying facts just to, to, to steer the narrative in a way that suits you and makes you comfortable and, and makes you happy with that narrative, you're like a cheerleader. You're not, you're not serious about, you know, history. So like it's, I think some people are going to, and a lot of people in Brazil don't know I'm half Brazilian. So they look at and my name. you German, is it? Well, I'm half Brazilian, half American. Okay. But a lot of Brazilians don't know that I'm half Brazilian. So they clearly see me as an extension of the AJJ sort of movement. You know, it's like, oh, you're just trying to destroy what Brazilians did and take credit from them. And I mean, people like that, you can't argue with people like that. I think that anyone that looks at the facts objectively is going to reach, is, is, is going to be on board with at least most of our conclusions and not, you know, if not all of them. 
but you know, we're prepared. Like you can't make everyone happy. Whenever like, I, this is a very hard lesson for me to learn as a person, but I always repeat myself, Jesus and Mahatma Gandhi could not make everyone happy. Right? Jesus got crucified. Mahatma Gandhi got killed by all his own people. All he did was talk about peace and they still killed him. Right? Like who am I to even try? Like, Oh, I'll get everyone to like, you can't man. Some people aren't going to like your opinions. They're not going to like your film. They're not going to like that. This, 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 your, uh, your narrative. There's no way out of that. So we don't want to, you know, let that dictate the direction of the film. Like that was something I always had a concern with. Oh, let's try to please the majority. Like, no, but if you do it this way, it's going to sell more. No, that's not the point. But Rob, if you do it this way, only 5% of people are going to like it. Well, if that's the truth, then that's that. And if they don't like it, it's on them. Fortunately, we, we found an investor, you know, his words, don't worry about the money, just tell the truth. His words. That's our investor. Like, we hit the lottery with this guy, right? Sure. As most investors will make sure that you make my money back. And this guy's like, no, make sure you tell the truth. So when he gave us that green light, like, we knew what, that our north could continue to be that which we always wanted wanted it which was still makes entertained film but not not a turn into like you know tell it there that's going to please brazilians or americans or japanese it's it's not about nationalism and you know that people's favorite clan or team it's about you know understanding our origins uh, which by the way when i said uh are you half german the name drysdale sounds german to me but Gosh. I have that in common. Oh, it's Dutch. No, it's Scottish. Scottish. Okay, sorry. You got, you got cut up. Okay. Uh, well, dude, there's like some greasy ties to that, man. Maybe maybe the Drysdale immigrated at the same time. <laughs> we were all Highlanders once. And we were, I'm just joking. I don't know. Uh, I actually went to Scotland once trying to find my family shield and the, 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 the kilt with the patterns. Uh-huh. I couldn't find it. Apparently, our clan was too small, and I think we were – we were like conquered by some other bigger clan or something like that. It's like, man, I got to create my own coat of arms. <laughs> right on. But thanks so much for the interview and uh, we'll chat some more. Thanks for tuning in to the show and please subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We're also available on your favorite directories aside from iTunes, such as Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and tune in. You can find us at Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V-E.com. And Believe Podcasts on social media. Now, if you want to get at me personally, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Plug12. That's P-L-U-G-O-N-E-T-W-O. Hit me up and I'll read your questions or maybe even have you on the show. Believe in the fight game. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.